Well, good morning, everybody. Two Sundays ago, we celebrated Easter, and I felt like we hadn't really covered the resurrection properly. And so last Sunday, we looked at evidence for the resurrection, and I still have one of these Case for Easter books by Lee Strobel, if anyone's interested. It's got a lot of good stuff in there. I'll put it over here. Um, you, you can just take that as long as you promise to read it. <laughs> um, and so we started to, last week we started to look at, we looked at the evidence of the resurrection. We started to look at the theological implications of the resurrection, um, of Jesus' miraculous rise from the grave. And I mentioned a man who had approached me over COVID. Um, he had been wrestling with his faith and he had asked me a question. He asked me, can I call myself a Christian if I can't believe in the resurrection? And the answer was no. The Bible clearly tells us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It says in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is faith spelled out for us. Because if we confess that Jesus is Lord, we're not just doing it with our mouths, we're, we're backing it up with what we do, right? With our actions. Otherwise, we would be hypocrites. And if Jesus is Lord of our life, then we've submitted to him. We've decided to trust him in what he says and, and believe that his way is better than the world's way. And the way that we express this belief, this, that his way is better than the world's way, is by submitting to him, by obeying what he teaches and what he commands. When we finally get back to our series in John, we will be continuing our series in John. Um, when we finally get back there, in just a few chapters from where we left off, Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And then in 2 John 1, 6, John says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so our love for Jesus is evident by our actions, by what we do. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So if we are truly followers of Jesus, if we are truly his followers, there's going to be good fruit. If we have made Jesus our Lord, then we submit to him, we submit to him in his way of doing things, and the evidence of that, the evidence of that submission is fruit. And so at its most basic, Romans 10.9 is saying that if, a person, that if a person is a Christian, a follower of Jesus, there was a point in that person's life when they chose to believe and trust Jesus as Lord and surrender to his way, his direction, his guidance. And also... That person believes that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and that Jesus is alive and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We can come to the Father in prayer because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. 
And, and a Christian believes that Jesus, the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity. He's not merely a man, but he is fully God as well. Fully man, fully God. And this can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. Um, there, were, there were groups in the early church that tried to explain this outside of Scripture. Um, and because of this, there were several rejected heresies throughout the centuries of the early church. Um, one of these stated that Jesus was two separate persons, one human, one divine, as if Jesus was separated into parts. But Jesus is not like a sandwich where the bread is his divine part and the cheese is his human part. He is two natures, fully man and fully God, but one person. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. It's a difficult concept. Um, for, and for centuries, again, the church wrestled with heresies popping up related to Jesus' nature. When Jesus died, he died like we one day will. And, and it wasn't the human part of Jesus that died and the, and the divine part, the Son of God that lived on. No, again, that's separating Jesus into two parts. Scripture doesn't separate Christ into two persons. It says that Christ died for us. So just like we one day will die, Jesus' body perished, but his spirit remained. And when he rose from the grave, he was given a new body, a resurrected body. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but the reason we have a future hope is that Jesus has led the way. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. When we are raised at the resurrection, we will be given a new body, just as Jesus was. And so he leads us into a new life in more ways than one. We are a new creation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we will also be a new creation when we are raised to new life after we die, when we're given a new body. And so there's this tension of the here but not yet. And I mentioned this last week. We have been, Christ has come, but he has yet to come back. We have been transformed, but we have yet to be fully transformed. We have been freed from sin, but we have yet to be freed from the world of sin. That's why it can be confusing when we're told that we are new creations in Christ, but yet it's possible for us to still choose to sin. It's possible for us to rebel against God. And that's why Paul continues to encourage the church to choose Christ, to continue to surrender him to him and not be conformed by this world, he says in Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We are in the here but not yet. However, it is possible for us to choose Jesus over our sin because of the cross, because of the empty tomb. But it still has to be a continual choice on our part, a continual surrender to him so that he can transform us into the image of his son. We need to allow ourselves to be transformed. And we need to, we need to choose it as we choose to follow Jesus as Lord and risen Savior. So 
that's a brief recap of what we talked about last week. Um, if you missed the message last week or you, you just want to listen to it again, uh, just a reminder, you guys can do that on the website. You can also do that by looking up PIBC on Spotify or Apple Music. So just a plug for that again. So now I want to highlight the theological implications for the resurrection or of the resurrection. What did the resurrection accomplish? And we talked about two things last week. The, fir the first one is that the resurrection backed up what Jesus said. It verifies Jesus' claims. And it shows us that Jesus truly is our Savior. So backed up Jesus' claims in that it gives us evidence that the claims that Jesus made about himself are true. He is the resurrection and the life. He does have authority over death. He is the Son of God. He and the Father are one. And there are dozens of things that Jesus said about himself that are proven true because of the resurrection. And we, and we talked about this last week. His resurrection also shows us that he truly is our Savior. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. He saved us from our sins, and now we are united with him in his death because we have surrendered to him. We have died to sin and we are raised to new life. In Romans 6, Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so because of the resurrection, we live with him now. We are all in Christ, meaning we are all united with him. And he lives in us through the Holy Spirit. But again, we are still in this here but not yet state. We may be in Christ, we may be new creations, but it's still possible for us to sin. It's still possible for us to rebel against God, to stray from his path for us. Paul says to the church in Rome, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So Paul is urging the believers in Rome to offer themselves to God and not to sin, not to rebel. But why does he need to say this to people who have been given a new nature, who are in Christ? Well, God has, has given mankind free will. We're not robots. We're not programmed to act in a certain way. We're not animals that act on instinct. We have the ability to make choices. And even as followers of Jesus, who are new creations, we still have the ability 
to choose his way or the world's way. But the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is that an unbeliever is bound by sin. And a believer is, has been freed from the chains of sin. And Romans 6 verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So now, through Christ, the Father has made us truly free to choose him. And you might be thinking, well, I know unbelievers that are good people. They're generous, they're kind, they're loving. And yes, unbelievers can choose to do good, but the work of Christ, the work that Christ has done in us as believers is at the core of our being. It's, it's our hearts that have been changed. Once a believer makes Jesus his or her Lord, as the Lord begins to work in them, both to will and work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2 says, he or she starts pursuing not to live according what, what, what he or she wants or feel, feels they want, but according to what their Lord, Jesus, wants. That is what he says in the Bible and, and how he leads us through his spirit. So Romans 10, 9 not only tells us what makes a believer, it also tells us what makes an unbeliever. If Jesus is our Lord and we follow his way, the unbeliever must be following something or someone else. Because everyone was created by God to be his children, to worship him with our lives. And so if we are created to worship and we're not worshiping God, then who or what are we worshiping? I don't know. There's any number of sins that an unbeliever may be bowing down to. Pleasure, comfort, power, money. Whatever they're worshiping is sin, and sin is rebellion against God. And so if anyone is in rebellion, they're being led by the leader of rebellion against God. This is the way of the world, and, and unbelievers follow in it. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We once lived to fulfill our flesh, meaning we lived only for ourselves, for our own pleasure, whatever served our interests or, or made us happy. That's what we did. So some of those desires may have been good things. Uh, we may have wanted to take care of our family or friends. But there's no looking to God for direction and guidance. Choices are based on what makes me feel good. And why would, a, why would an unbeliever ask God for guidance if God is not their Lord? They are their own gods, the captain of their own ships, and the wheel is in their hands to go wherever they please, do what they please. And so unbelievers may do nice things 
and seem like nice people, but we have to understand that what makes us Christians, what makes us followers of Jesus, is not that we do nice things or act like nice people. What makes us believers is that Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior, and He has saved us from the selfish impulses that once ruled in our hearts. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are free from sin, free to choose God, free to be nice and kind and good, not because it suits our needs or somehow benefits us, but because that's who we are now that Jesus has changed our hearts and is changing our hearts. It's the fruit of the Spirit. God is living in us, working in us to make us more like Christ. That's not the case for the unbeliever. The unbeliever wants to be in control. The unbeliever wants to drive their own ship. And yet the unbeliever is controlled by the sinful nature, by selfishness, by the search for comfort, for happiness, for pleasure. If we are followers of Jesus, we have laid down that selfish search in order to follow our Lord who alone guides and directs our steps. And so Jesus is our Savior because he saved us from sin, but he's also saved us from death. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, it says in John 3.16. I think we all know that verse. We've been saved from, et from eternal death. Ephesians 2.3 says that unbelievers by nature are children of wrath. We just read this passage. And so... This means that the unbelievers, who, people who have not repented and turned to Jesus as Lord, will face the coming judgment of the wrath of God. And so this is what separates believers and unbelievers. But we can't be high and mighty because we have been saved. We are saved by grace. We don't deserve it. But God loves his creation. He desires that everyone repent in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here, Peter's addressing some in the church who, who were wondering why Jesus had not yet come back. In his grace, God is patiently working in this world through us, through his people, to help others understand who he really is and what Jesus really did for us and how they can be saved from the path that leads to eternal death. Because Jesus will return and he will judge the world and there will be eternal consequences for those who continue to choose sin and death. They will be given what they continue to pursue. They will be given eternal death. And so... This is why it's so important for us to share what Jesus has done in, in our lives for us. And all of us have a unique story that we can share with those who, who, who are around us, how Jesus opened our eyes, how he helped us see, and, and how he led us to repentance, to repent of our sin when we chose to surrender our lives to him as Lord. And he made us clean. 
And we are made clean because of what he's done. We are made righteous because of his righteousness. And he truly is righteous because he lived a righteous life on this earth. He lived without sin. He lived in this sinful world without sin. And this was proven when the Father accepted him as a sacrifice for our sins, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And because he was righteous, because we are united with him, that is, in Christ, we are made righteous before God. And again, having, having Christ's righteousness given to us does not mean that we automatically do what is right. That comes through the process of sanctification, through, through the Holy Spirit working in us. The resurrection means Christ proved himself righteous to the Father so that through faith, we can share in his righteousness. That's why Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The cross and the empty tomb cannot be separated. These two events depend on each other. Together they demonstrate that Christ's payment for sin has been accepted and his victory is ours. And his work is truly good news. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says, Praise be to the Lord, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What is new birth? We've, we've seen that the Bible says that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are a new creation. Is that related? It is. When, when Jesus explains new birth to Nicodemus in John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The new birth is the beginning of our walk with God. It's what happens when we first surrender our lives to him, when we repent and we receive the Holy Spirit. You probably heard the term born-again Christian, um, just, a, just a different term to describe the same thing. In fact, there's no such thing as a Christian who has not been born again. Being born again is a spiritual rebirth. We were in Adam, and now we are in Christ. Back to that passage in 1 Peter, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And this living hope is a hope that we have in him now. He has rescued us from sin. He has made us new. And he has given us the Holy Spirit. But our hope is not just what we have now. It's the fact, the truth, that we will one day be with Jesus. No more suffering, no more pain. The things of this world 
the ways of this fallen, self-destructive world will fade away, will pass away, and we will be with Jesus. We are united with him now, excuse me, we are united with him now in spirit, but we will one day see him face to face. Remember, and I keep coming back to this, we are in this here, but not yet state. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, for, we, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We have this living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Back to that first Peter passage again. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Like Abraham, we are looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Our inheritance is something that we can look forward to, something to be hopeful for. And unlike things in this world in which people put their hope, like a vacation, a new car, a a job offer, unlike those things which don't last or which disappoint us, this hope is a living hope. It's a hope that we can cling to because of its certainty. And because it won't go away like the things of this world do. And not only that, again, we will see Jesus face to face. We will be forever in his presence. And it's only possible because of what he's done. By the way, our our guarantee of this inheritance is the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And we can only receive the Holy Spirit because we have been forgiven, because we have been made righteous, because we are born again into new creations. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to to his disciples, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until he was raised and ascended into heaven. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit is another accomplishment of the resurrection. Jesus promises this gift to the disciples before his death. In John 14, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And before his ascension into heaven, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we don't just receive the Holy Spirit to confirm our inheritance to come. That's part of it. We receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has been sent to us to guide us, to direct us, to help us, to comfort us, 
and to empower us to boldly go and proclaim the good news, this good news that Jesus has died and risen again. And so that brings us to our last question. What does this all mean for us as followers of Jesus? Or maybe better put, what is our responsibility? Jesus has done all these things for us. He's set us free from sin. He's, he's made us a new creation. He's given us the Holy Spirit. What do we do? What is our responsibility? What do we do with these things? Well, first of all, we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus. And Jesus left a very clear example for us when he lived on earth. And maybe he's not, he, sorry, he modeled a sacrificial life for us. And maybe he's not calling us to literally die on a cross like he did. But he, he most definitely calls his followers to a sacrificial life. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then in Matthew 20, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. After the death of Jesus, the apostles flee, and they go into hiding. When they first encounter the risen Jesus, they're actually... They've actually locked themselves in a room. They're so, they're that afraid. And Jesus appears to them in that locked room. Even though Jesus had predicted his death, had predicted his resurrection, they didn't understand. They were terrified. They did not understand. And so we see them go from the, but we see them go from these scared and confused men to to, to men that boldly and sacrificially and unashamedly proclaim the gospel, share this message of their Savior. How does this happen? How do they go from these scared men locked in a room to preaching about Jesus on the streets in the face of persecution and death? Well, they encounter the risen Jesus. And he appears to them on and off for 40 days after his resurrection. And I'm sure he reminds them of his teachings. He explains to them the significance of what he's done, just like he did on the road to Emmaus to those two disciples. And then he ascends to heaven and they receive the Holy Spirit and everything finally clicks. They finally understand what Jesus came to do, how he, the Son of God, had, had lived so sacrificially. They begin to understand why he had to die, what his resurrection meant for them. And then they go out, and they not only boldly share this, they face persecution and death. All of the disciples are killed for their faith. Some of them are tortured and killed. They not only share this message of what Jesus did, they, they live it out. They follow his example of humility and servanthood. They finally understood. And Paul, and Paul becomes an apostle. Paul, who had persecuted the church, 
he had he had overseen the murder of followers of Jesus. And he encounters the risen Jesus. He encounters the risen Jesus and he is changed. He he turns into a person, he is changed into a person who shares this, this work of spreading the news of Jesus and of living a sacrificial life. He says in Philippians 2, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Paul understood what Jesus came to do and that as his follower, he was to participate in the same kind of humility, the same servanthood, the same sacrificial life. And he's encouraging the Philippian church here to do the same. We are blessed to be a blessing. The Holy Spirit is a sign, a guarantee of our inheritance. He's our guide and our comforter. He empowers us to live for Jesus And we are forgiven and made right in the eyes of God because of Jesus. But we don't don't just keep that for ourselves. We are blessed to be a blessing. Our, Our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to go and to share this message with others. To share this message with the world. And why wouldn't we want to do that? We if we have been blessed, Jesus is our Savior and and He can save others too but he can't save others if they don't know him. We need to let them know. We need to share the message of what Jesus has done. It has changed our lives, and it can change the lives of others who don't know him. But they can't be changed unless they know. So why is the resurrection so important? Did I skip a bunch of verses? (laughs) I must not have copied it. That's okay. Why is the resurrection so important? Without it, we don't have any of those things. I'm going to go back and find it. We don't have any of these things without the resurrection. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus asks us to go and make disciples. Part of of the reason we've been given the Holy Spirit is to do just that. We don't have to be afraid like the disciples in that locked room because we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to to do his work, to live for him and to go and make disciples as Jesus commanded us to do. Let's bow our heads together. Jesus, we, we just are so thankful for what you've done for us 
what you continue to do in us to, through the Holy Spirit, work in us and change our hearts even more, God, as we look to you, as we surrender to you. We can see the fruit of that in our lives. We can look back to our past and say, wow, I've changed so much. I'm a different person because you are my Lord. You are my Savior. You've saved me from those things that were leading me to death. And so we are changed by you, but, but we're changed by you for a reason, God, not just for ourselves, but for, for the world, for those around us. We need to be sharing what you're doing in our lives. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to feel like we, we are perfect to go and share this message because you're still working in us. You're still transforming us. We're still being changed, but we can share that work that you're doing in us, God. We can share our stories with the people that we know, the people around us. So we just pray that you would give us courage through your Holy Spirit to do that, to truly love others by, by sharing the good news, the gospel with them. Just give us power to do that through your Holy Spirit, God. Help us not to be afraid because we sometimes are afraid to do that. And we know that um, your Holy Spirit can take away that fear. In your word, it says, perfect love drives out all fear. And so we just thank you for your promises. We thank you for your continued work in us. You are so faithful to us, God. Uh, we just, again, all we can say is thank you. Thank you, and, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.